Hello and welcome to With Faith in Mind. I'm Dan Hummel, today's host, and I'm also the Director of University Engagement at Upper House. Today we're exploring the recent past and near future of lay Christian education, those educational settings outside but often adjacent to the institutional structures of colleges and universities and churches and seminaries. It's part of our series on Christian education at the crossroads. And in this episode, we welcome Dr. Charlie Cotherman to the show. Hi, Charlie. Hey, it's good to be with you. Glad to be here. Excellent. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, I want to introduce you quickly before we jump into the conversation. Uh, Charlie is uh, probably first and foremost the pastor at Oil City Vineyard, a church in Oil City, Pennsylvania. He got his PhD from the University of Virginia in Religious Studies, and he's the author of To Think Christianly, A History of Labrie Regent College and the Christian Studies Center Movement a book of particular interest to us here at Upper House, since we're a Christian study center. And Charlie's also the program director at the Project on Rural Ministry, which is at Grove City College. Uh, Charlie, there's one other thing I wanted to uh, mention with your biography, and it came out in looking up your uh, pastor page at Oil City Vineyard. And it says that at some point in your life, you had a horribly failed run at being a punk rock star. <laughs> yeah. And as someone who's a fan of punk rock, I want to know, uh, is there a short version of that story or is that a, a very long and complicated story? No, we, <laughs> we tried real hard. We had a band and we tried real hard, right? And, uh, and eventually we realized that, especially when our lead singer found a girlfriend and decided he was done, that it was just time <laughs> to do something else. What, what, if I can ask, what years was... It was like 07, 08. I, I was probably... I okay. was, I'd say, okay. tell people I had a quarter-life crisis when I was 25. And, uh, you know, so hopefully I won't have a midlife one. Uh, that's right. Okay. Well, thinking, I mean, I'm a, I'm a connoisseur, I guess I was in high school in 2000 to 2004. So it was, that was the high point of, uh, it was sort of a golden age of a certain type of punk rock at least. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think a lot of us of that age probably, um, I guess you're a little older, but it, it was definitely in the water. Um, yes. sort of the, the fallout boy. Yeah. That pop uh, punk kind of <laughs> thing. Punk yeah. Stuff. yeah. Yeah. We did right. some fallout boy covers. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's right. All right. Awesome. Well, um, hopefully, uh, I don't think that'll come up again in our conversation, but th- th- good to know. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, Charlie, I'm, we've, uh, we've known each other here for a couple of years. A few years ago, we were able to, right at the beginning of COVID, actually, um, able to uh, talk about your book, uh, To Think Christianly, um, here at Upper House, and then also with a broader uh, study center audience. And so uh, I just grew to appreciate your perspective on the history mm-hmm. of, of these sort of institutions that sit next to universities, but aren't usually affiliated with them, though there are a few that become affiliated and are really uh, striving to offer educational uh, life of the mind type opportunities for students, uh, while also supporting those students in the work they're doing at these universities. And so mm-hmm. as we're thinking about Christian education, in this series, we're trying to think very broadly and trying to make sure we don't just go into the usual patterns of thinking of sort of institutions like uh, colleges and seminaries, but also all of the types of other types of institutions that also offer Christian education. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll be where we go. I did want to start with a slightly more uh, personal question, asking where your passions came from for studying what you studied uh, sort of this history of the study center movement. Mm-hmm. And then also you have a strong passion for rural ministry. And mm-hmm. those might look at, at sort of different 
sectors that don't overlap a lot on paper, but I wonder if you could just weave us a story for how those things uh, sure. connect to you. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a lot of personal history. I, I am a person who believes that like, you know, the sovereignty of God works its way out in our lives in all kinds of different ways. And so I, I like to, to take into account just the kind of places he puts us. So I happen to have been born and lived most of my life in rural Western Pennsylvania. And I, I, I think maybe God had a reason for putting me here and I'm trying to be faithful in this place and to this group of people that I call my, you know, my own, that's mine from childhood, you know, I inherited. Yeah. Um, and then the study of evangelicalism and the study center movement, it really was kind of a multi-step thing, but it was still out of that personal kind of, I was in seminary. I was thinking about going into a PhD program and I was working with my advisor was Scott Sunquist, and we were kind of talking about evangelicalism. And I realized, um, that I spoke the language of evangelicalism as an insider. Like this was like, I grew mm-hmm. up listening to Dobson. I, and so I started studying evangelicalism, but I also kind of had this persistent kind of um, story in my life where the, most of the evangelicalism I knew was pretty anti-intellectual. And so mm-hmm. I was always um, interested in evangelicals who were really trying to think well. And so kind of through a series of twists and turns, you know, I ran into Francis Schaeffer and I was interested in his later life, which was kind of political, but also his early career and really the, the whole of his career, which we ca- did care about these questions. And then I happened to be at the University of Virginia. You can't avoid the study center there. And so I was like, this is so fascinating. Look at all these evangelicals trying to think well. Um, and so as I dug into that, I realized this other history I'm studying and this history comes together. So it was kind of a perfect fit to just jump right in. That's fascinating. Well, I think those things will come through uh, as we talk about, um, particularly the history here. So I want to jump to the history. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of our listeners and trying to give a, a slightly broader. We've we've we we actually talked to Doug Strong. He's a going to be on another one of the episodes, and he's a a, a historian of the Sunday School movement that goes mm-hmm. all the way yeah. back to the uh, 19th century and even before he he roots it in there. So we're going to have a slightly shorter timeline here. Mm-hmm. Um, to talk about, but thinking about the last, uh, you know, we, we talk about the post-war period, the period after World War II, right. uh, last 70 or so years. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me as I was uh, thinking about uh, uh, the study center movement is that a lot of it, and you talk about this in your book, a lot of it does trace back to that post-war period. So we're mm-hmm. talking like the 1940s, 1950s. Um, if we could go back to that period uh, mm-hmm. in our minds here, what would uh, Christian education look like uh, at that point? And I, what I'm trying to get a sense of is yeah. what were the conditions for which a lot of these new types of experimental um, institutions like study centers emerged out of? What was the sort of context and what was the need that they were rising to meet? Yeah, it's a great question because obviously nothing happens in a vacuum. And so when you think about that post-war period in Christian education, you have to almost like have as a context the kind of fundamentalist modernist controversy that happened before and this kind of sense of, you know, circling the wagons, creating our own institutions, the fundamentalists creating their own institutions, Bible study, I mean, Bible Institute movement, just growing by leaps and bounds. You know, in the 30s, the Bible Institute movement grew so much, as did Christian undergrad colleges, um, places Mm -hmm. like even Grove City just had such increased enrollment during those years. So there is this push for Bible institutes and even Christian liberal arts schools heading into 
Then obviously the GI Bill and stuff, every higher ed institution in the United States is gaining students and Christian universities and colleges are there too. So you have this liberal arts kind of college thing happening that's being buoyed up by the GI Bill and, and all that. But as far as theological education goes, you know, there's a, there's a group of neo-evangelicals led by people like Harold Ockengay, and they start trying to kind of get, regain this, what they sense is this lost status in society, this lost cultural voice. And so, you know, you have the NAE formed in, in 1942, but then shortly thereafter, you have Fuller in 47. So you have this kind of like, uh, you know, professional clergy training that they're trying to be like, um, you know, model themselves after Princeton, but be an evangelical Princeton. So on for clergy, you have this kind of renewed push, you know, and then you start thinking about Trinity coming along and Gordon Conwell in the late 60s, you know. So there's a push for, you know, evangelical uh, clerical training that's that's top notch. But but the laity, there's not a lot for them until some of these movements come along. That's interesting. So you're narrating sort of the the way that um, if we go back to the fundamentalist movement, a lot of Christians who were more conservative theologically sort of pull out of um, their denominations mm-hmm. and pull out of the seminaries and the missions agencies that they've been a part of, and they build their own institutions mm-hmm. that, um, and I think this is where the, your comment about uh, some of the organizations you grew up in were anti-intellectual. That was part mm-hmm. of that Mm-hmm. pulling out was actually pulling out of the intellectual conversations that were happening mm-hmm. in those spaces. And so by the time we get to the fifties, there's a new set of institutions. You mentioned sort of Fuller Seminary, mm-hmm. um, and then later some other ones come along, um, that, uh, basically are in some ways starting over or mm-hmm. trying to think about how this new, um, institutional context where they're not connected to these older, uh, seminaries and colleges, um, how do they reconnect with some of those bigger conversations, uh, mm-hmm. those bigger intellectual concerns, questions in theology, in biblical studies, but also in in uh, other sectors? Does that sound about right? Yeah. And I think the, the big distinction, too, is, you know, if you think about places like Moody Bible Institute, like their goal was the evangelization of the world. Right. So they're trying to train evangelists. They're not thinking mm-hmm. about top tier academics. Now, right. when Ockengay and Fuller and, and then eventually Billy Graham get involved in, in Fuller Seminary, I mean, Ockengay is pretty clear at the beginning. He's trying to create like the Caltech of the theological education world. You know, so mm-hmm. now they're setting their sights on something different where they're saying we want to think really, really well and mm-hmm. be people of faith. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So, so we have that happening um, and those Christian colleges, many lay people are going into those. Um, uh, I think of, you know, you have your classic ones too, like Wheaton college, Mm -hmm. um, is growing at this time as well. Um, you start talking in, in your research about these two particular strands that are really important. Mm -hmm. One of them is Labrie and the other one is Regent college. So let's start with Labrie and you mentioned Francis Schaeffer. He's this important sort of, uh, intellectual figure, uh, in starting in the 1950s, but give us the sense of, of Labrie, which is totally different than a Christian college, uh, by the way, but. It gives a sense of what was going on there. What was Labrie's uh, sort of origin story and what, what, what was it trying to do? Yeah, so Francis and Edith Schaefer, and, and it's hard to think of them apart from each other because they really both formed Labrie so much. Um, Francis Schaefer was a pastor first and foremost and really always was a pastor. He was never an actual academic in any sense. 
Um, but they they were really, really thoughtful, really capable. And so they have a lot of success in America in the past where they go bigger, bigger churches, bigger, bigger cities. And eventually they become known as these people that work well with children. So actually their denomination asked them to go in 1948 in the post-war Europe to go and work with children. And while they're over there, um, he meets um, people like uh, the art historian Hans Ruckmacher. And, and you know, he, he, he starts, Europe does for Schaefer, it, it transforms him into this like person. He's always had, had liked art, but in Europe, he can go to all the museums. And so he starts mm. thinking, well, Europe's ahead when it comes to existentialism and stuff like that. So he's in all these conversations and, and he really finds a home there after he kind of goes through his own crisis of faith. And then he comes out on the other side and what they decide together is that they need to just make their house, um, basically their mission field and, and their sending agency uh, doesn't like it. They actually cut off funds. And, and in 1955 mm-hmm. as complete faith missionaries with just a prayer list uh, for support, um, they start Labrie which means a shelter. And they decide, they design it as a place where anyone can come with their questions for coffee and a meal. And that's what it really is for decades. Hmm. And that's, um, so that should sound really familiar to someone like me who's running a study center now. It's a right. open space where people have coffee. They, um, they do bring their um, intellectual questions, but they also just bring sort of life questions mm-hmm. into the space. Um, what's it like to be a 20 year old uh, in, you know, and, and dealing with those issues. So, um, obvious, uh, connection to, um, of course there's a lot of twists and turns of the story, but obvious inspiration for, um, the study centers, which emerge, uh, much later. Right. Um, and many so, of the people, many of the people in the study center movement find their way to Switzerland, to, uh, Waymo, Switzerland and to Labrie at some point. So there is this kind of like network growing through, especially the late sixties and early seventies. Yeah, that's right. And I actually think of a couple of people on our staff, um, who, either went to Labrie, the original one, or Labrie's now has, you know, camps all over the world um, and has gone there. Can you talk just briefly about, um, I think of uh, someone on our staff, Cam Anderson, who's our associate director, who cites Labrie or cites Schaefer um, and Labrie as a major inspiration for why he became an artist. Um, Mm -hmm. And he grew up in the 60s, 70s. Can you just talk uh, briefly about Schaefer's vision for how, um, Things that maybe that anti-intellectual tradition in evangelicalism mm-hmm. pushed away, things like art and uh, sort of literature and history, and how Schaefer saw those things uh, connecting with the Bible and, and with Christian faith. Yeah, so I, I can't think about this without thinking of Abraham Kuyper, though Schaefer wasn't a, you know, a huge Kuyperian, but in a sense, I mean, that sense that it's all Jesus's, right? Schaefer modeled that, and he he was able to communicate that all of life matters to God. And if you talk to people and you listen to their stories or you read what they wrote from that period, that was one of the main things they got from Labrie. They 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 sensed love, they sensed answers to prayer, and they sensed that all of life mattered, including your mind, including culture, including art. And Schaefer was really was one of the first prominent evangelicals even you might say prominent fundamentalists to to say art matters enough to talk about it we're not just talking about evangelism Mm -hmm. we're not just going to be content with our you know same picture everyone has in their church of jesus that looks like a swedish model or something like we're going to dig into art (laughs) we're going to actually ask hard questions and look at art and appreciate that god uses it and that was true for all of us. so whether you were a you know wanted to be a pastor or an academic or 
you know, a writer or an artist, Schaefer mm. really believed that it all mattered. Right. And there's a whole generation of, of those, what this, the professions you just listed, um, of Christians who would point to Schaefer as a major, uh, inspiration for them, uh, to go into those fields. Um, okay. So that's one, uh, really interesting development in the post-war period is this Labrie house model. And you can see how the study centers today are a version of that though. Uh, there's not a direct line, but there's definitely an indirect line there. Mm -hmm. Um, actually there is a direct line. You mentioned it. A lot of the study center leaders, um, found their calling uh, through places like Labrie. There's another strand you look at, and uh, it's just as interesting, I think, which is Regent College, mm -hmm. a, a college that is still very active um, and vibrant in Vancouver. Tell us about the founding of that and what the vision was behind Regent College. Yeah, so Regent starts with the vision of a Plymouth Brethren shoe merchant named Marshall, Marshall Shepherd in Vancouver. and and a uh, brother and community in Vancouver that was open. They were the op open brethren, so they were willing to work with others because some Plymouth brethren are, are very much sectarian. But in Vancouver, this community was pretty affluent. They were all they they were thoughtful. They were open to working with others. And so as they started talking, they started to realize that their children were part of this post World War II, uh, were experiencing this growth in education, and they were going to probably want pastors who were also educated. The only problem was that Plymouth Brethren didn't ordain actual professional clergy. So mm. they had to figure out how to help their clergy get more education while still emphasizing a lay clergy. And so mm. what came out of that was this vision for Regent College, which, though it had from the beginning conversations about professional clergy tracks, really the main stream of conversation was toward a lay theological education, a graduate mm. lay theological education. Um, that could come in a one-year diploma for people that were going into the workforce and just had a year, kind of gap year, or it could come in a three-year degree that many would compare to professional uh, bachelor divinity, which was what it was back then, or master divinity, but um, it was for lay people. Mm. Yeah, and it, it's, um, it's interesting. I, we actually have a pastor at my church who went to Regent, so it's interesting how they've expanded, and many clergy are also uh, you know, Regent uh, graduates as well. But that, that core vision, as the interesting vision, it's the one that the, the lay vision is what inspires us here at Upper House too, which is that theological education isn't just for clergy. Mm -hmm. um, it can actually be very useful for people who are engineers or, or lawyers or uh, business, business uh, owners or anything like that. Um, one, one thing that you highlight in uh, both of these stories, Labrie and Regent College, is how there was a little more space for women to obtain theological education. Could you just talk a little about, um, about that and why that was the case? Yeah, I think that's one of the really cool parts of this story um, is how, you know, because Schaefer, for the entirety of his life, didn't believe in ordaining women, but he would teach a whole generation of young women theology at Libri. Um, and what happened is because they weren't ordaining and, and training ordained clergy, if it was lay education, it was open to anyone. And so male or female, you had an equal chance at either of these institutions to learn. And, and I think that was a beautiful thing at that time, because within 
North American evangelicalism at that time, it was not easy to be a woman in seminary. It was extremely right. difficult. You would get called into the dean's office because of, you know, your outfit wasn't appropriate, according to their right. policy. Uh, you know, it was just extremely difficult to even get in. You weren't allowed to take preaching classes. Here, it didn't matter. You were just a learner along with everyone else, but you were learning from some of the best. Yeah, uh, very interesting. So we have um, an um, openness. Uh, and I would say the other, um, don't want to diminish how this created a huge opportunity for women to learn theology. But um, I think just returning to the idea that theology wasn't just for the clergy. It wasn't just for mm -hmm. the people who were going to maybe explicitly use it in their line of work. Um, uh, it was for um, the, the rest of us as well. And um, I just want to reiterate for the readers how interesting it is. And this is maybe the historian nerd coming out, but how interesting it is that this comes out of this uh, Plymouth Brethren, which is a very... Yeah small, uh, obscure to most of us, um, sect of Protestantism that for a variety of reasons, one of their views is they, you just don't believe in professional clergy. Uh, and so it made no sense for a seminary, right? Cause that's mm -hmm. the, for the professional clergy. Um, and, and of course, most people who go to Regent are not Plymouth brethren, nor would they really be sympathetic to a lot of the Pl Pl Plymouth brethren, uh, theology. But it's from that sort of, uh, what would you call it, an egalitarian, though that's not a word I'd usually use with the Plymouth Brethren, but this egalitarian view of who should be able to run a church or who should mm -hmm. be able to teach in a church. Um, I also think, and Charlie, this might have been in your book too, that a lot of the um, original vision in Plymouth Brethren were like bivocational pastors. So it was mm -hmm. people who weren't professional clergy in the sense that they got their money just from a church. They were uh, mm -hmm. uh, a clerk, and then they were also a a pastor uh, on the right. side. And so it also didn't make sense to have this big professional degree when most of their, you know, days were spent, uh, doing something else, uh, yeah. doing some other profession. Um, okay. So hopefully listeners can see as we're sort of weaving our way through some of these, uh, innovations through the post-war period, how, uh, different institutions are popping up to meet different needs and to offer different just visions of what it could mean to be educated uh, mm -hmm. as a Christian to have a lively life of the mind. There's so many more examples, uh, Charlie, uh, in your book, uh, but I wanna uh, just give room here. Um, it, are there any sort of models or forms of education that sort of come front of the mind of this period beyond the Labrie model, the sort of house model, and the Regent College model? You know, what else is going on in the 70s, 80s, 90s that is, is of interest? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of experimentation, right? Mm. So. The free university model, that's not a, not something that Christians have a corner on, but, you know, in San Francisco Bay Area, Berkeley, you know, there's a group of Christians that are right there at the high watermark of the counterculture, and they start thinking about free university in Berkeley, and they call it the crucible, you know, and out of that comes, mm. um, you know, a study center that becomes a, that basically tries to become like region, educate uh, New College Berkeley, educate lay people with graduate degrees. But it starts as this free university, you know. The other innovative thing, and it happens at Regent, but it's not part of the story we've talked about, is when they start this summer school. Um, and so they actually launch Regent with a summer school, a six-week summer school, divided into three-week sections. And they do that two summers before they launch their fall term in 70. Um, this summer school is really innovative because it can, in the, your summer school, you can bring John Stott. You can bring F.F. Bruce. They don't have to say, I'll live in Vancouver. 
and be on your staff, but they can come and interact with whoever can get there for a pretty low price. Um, and so a whole generation of lay evangelicals are, are learning from the cream of the crop. And mm. I think that does something to, you know, even the evangelical landscape in North America. So the fact they had summer schools, and this gets picked up by a number of other places, the summer school model, but, but Regent, because Houston, James Houston, the first principal, had such a, uh, a deep appreciation for models he had experienced at Oxford. He pulls this over from Oxford, England. Mm. Um, they, they've kind of pioneered this. Yeah, and I think of um, just some of the ways that, that what uh, Regent is doing there with the Summer Institute just has echoes of things that were way older than that. I think of like the Chautauqua mm -hmm. circuit uh, and the way that, you know, major names would come through and everyone would get to learn uh, from these names and the, the draw. This is obviously before any type of um, you know, uh, video, uh, online video or anything like that. So the draw of being able to see this person in person yeah. to, to learn from them in the flesh um, is so high. So um, and Vancouver is a pretty nice place, if I remember in the in the summer, you know, early summer. That's so that's a great, <laughs> great that's place great. to uh, to 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 study for a while. And one thing, um, okay. you know, if I could add one quick thing, yeah. too, and along those lines is, you know, just the beauty of Vancouver, the beauty of the Swiss Alps. I mean, this was such mm -hmm. a holistic experience. It was the kind mm -hmm. of experience that that you never forgot, and that that you know, weeks that might change your life because. You're at one of the most beautiful places you've ever been. You're being challenged to think broadly about how Christianity can impact every aspect of your life. You're with some of the most talented teachers the evangelical world has to offer. I mean, and then you're, you're getting even the meals are instructional. You know, when Edith Schaefer presents a multi-course meal and the napkins are folded just right, and she has lists about how to butter the bread to the very edge. I mean, she cared. Like, it's all instructional. It's all saying that life matters, embodied life, which I think is a huge point to make about this. It's hmm. not just heads and brains on sticks, but this is for all of who the, these people are. Mm, that's great. That's great. And that, um, that's one of the, the arguments we make here at, at Upper House for being a, a physical space where people, um, we're not just sort of distributing uh, videos or, or podcasts, but we're actually a space where people can come in, experience hospitality, get to actually know other people in the, in the flesh. And there is definitely um, much more that happens than just brain activity at that mm -hmm. point. It's a full mm -hmm. body, uh, full spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so if, if listeners, if they've been listening closely, they might have detected that there is some theological similarity to some of these um, uh, efforts. So um, you, you mentioned Charlie Kuyper, who's this important figure in the Calvinistic sort of reform tradition. That's where Schaefer came from uh, as well. I just wanted to, to give you a space to talk about the broader theological underpinning that's underlying a lot of this desire for Christian education. And my, my suspicion is it's, that there's a sort of reformed background to a lot of it. But if you could just talk a bit about where, the, where people are coming from theologically. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there is a reformed background, but it's broadly reformed, you know? So... Mm. I mean, yeah, there's a Dutch reform like Kuiper, you know, Rookmacher. Yeah, there's a Dutch reform thread that's coming through this. And, and this is a stream that really does have an appreciation for, you know, the gospel impacting all of life an appreciation for like a pluralistic society where everything can compete equally, you know, and um, mm. which is they would say would be good for everybody, Christianity included and Christians 
on the free marketplace would probably do pretty well because their beliefs are true. Um, but then, you know, there's also this kind of broadly reformed, like even Luther, you know, this sense of table talk, you know, and that shows up at the Ligonier Valley Study Center. They call their first uh, publication table talk. And, and there's a sense in which Luther took the scripture to the masses in the vernacular and, and thought, you know, that women should learn at the table too. And, and, and so there is this just broadly reformed um, part of that's an appreciation for scripture. Most of these places value scripture very highly. Um, you know, so there's a broadly reformed element to it, though I wouldn't want to call it strictly Calvinist. I mean, you have Plymouth Brethren, right? But they have, they're right. working with Anglicans and Presbyterians, you know. Right. There is an interdenominational uh, part of that uh, as well. If we could just, we're going to move uh, soon to the to the present moment, but um, Charlie, as someone who spent a lot of time thinking about all these different manifestations um, over the post-war period, and you know, many of them are still in existence or, and are doing quite well, um, but if you were to just sort of grade it, uh, what, what would be some of the biggest strengths of these types of efforts, and if we're going to bound them together in sort of the study center type um, uh, model, uh, what are some of the biggest strengths of that, mm -hmm. uh, of this movement, this effort? And then what are a few of the weaknesses or the sure. challenges that um, these types of efforts at Christian education face? Yeah. Well, the strengths, we've named some of them. I mean, just the way in which people from all walks of life um, could take some time to think Christianly about their vocations and their profession. I mean, I think that was a strength that it wasn't just for clergy asking the same kind of questions, but it was for people asking a whole range of questions. They might not even believe in the Lord yet, you know, so that was especially at Labrie. I mean, there were all kinds of people that did not believe God even existed there, you know. Um, so that was a strength. I think a strength was how quick on their feet so many of these places were because they were small and they weren't huge institutions, you know, with, you know, pensions to pay. I think being able to be quick on your feet um, was, was a strength being, you know, needing to be ecumenical to some degree, you know, uh, this sense of Lewis's mere Christianity was something that, you know, maybe not as much at Labrie, but definitely at Regent and some of these other places was, was at the forefront. So there were a lot of strengths just around accessibility. And I think some of those strengths actually become, or, or become maybe not, they don't become weaknesses, but they end up kind of decreasing, uh, in how much of a strength they actually are as the years go on, as hmm. things change. So now when I think about, um, when I think about accessibility, a lot of these study centers don't seem super accessible anymore hmm. to like the average uh, American Christian, unless you have time and money to spend time somewhere, you know, it's, it's hard to get there. Or unless you get into a fairly elite university, you know, it's hard mm -hmm. to get to a study center. Um, they're not everywhere. So I think as accessible as they initially were, they're actually not very accessible to a wide range of people anymore. And that's, that's something that I, does concern me, and we can get into that later, but it's something I think about. Um, I think another weakness is, you know, these strengths and weaknesses are so interconnected. So the strength is they can move quickly. They're independent. They can, they can, they're quick on their feet. But the weakness is that sometimes personalities just drive the whole thing, you know, mm. and if the personality goes off the rails, the whole thing goes off the rails or if the personality um, passes away. Like, is there someone to pick up the reins, you know? 
Mm-hmm. And that was Regent's strength is they had an amazing team. Houston gets a lot of credit and he deserves a lot of credit. Uh, he was the charismatic leader, but Regent did so well because they had an amazing, amazing and big team. Yeah. I, I love thinking about um, those challenges as, as sort of um, different variations on the strengths. Um, and I think we can move toward particularly that accessibility question. Mm-hmm. When I heard you say that, I was thinking about um, the, uh, well, exactly what you said, the way that we, there's about 30 study centers now, if we're just going to talk about study centers, um, the 30, 35, most of them are um, obviously on college campuses. That's sort of the model is mm-hmm. you, you plant yourself next to a college campus and you serve the students and the faculty at that university or college. Um, but many study centers, and I'd say Upper House is in the mix there at the University of Wisconsin, want to be near elite uh, mm-hmm. universities, universities that have rankings and resources and some of the best faculty, some of the brightest students. Um, and, uh, and of course, that's a very small segment of American society that ever goes uh, through those things. Um, can you just talk about... Um, well, I want to hear uh, if you have any more thoughts on that uh, sort of development in the study center movement. I know there's other um, models for that. I think of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, mm-hmm. which has really emphasized trying to create chapters at Christian, uh, community colleges. Uh, that's mm-hmm. some of their new efforts, which are obviously a different group of students. Mm-hmm. Um, but also as someone who works in the rural setting for a lot mm-hmm. of your work, um, uh, yeah, I guess, how do you, how do you see that um, development of a lot of the effort for Christian education being focused on elite university um, uh, students and faculty? Yeah, well, I, th- I see it a couple different ways. On the one level, on one hand, I, I think it's excellent. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense, and I think it should be happening, you know, because these are places that are shaping our culture. These are places where there are funds usually available to do this kind of work because it does take money. Um, there's alumni pools that care about thinking well. So it does make sense. And I don't hold anything against it. In fact, it, you know, it, if there's 30 more elite universities, they should all have a study center, in my opinion. You know, <laughs> now I will also say, I think the consortium and the movement and those who are willing to invest in it should think carefully about trying to broaden their efforts to smaller schools, you know, um, because there is a, uh, there is a divide in kind of historically Orthodox Christianity in the United States between kind of uh, those who, who live in, in urban and suburban centers near great institutions with great communities of thoughtful leaders and those who live in most of the rest of the country where you just don't always have even, you don't even know that's out there, you know? And so my heart is for the smaller places to actually, to see more of these pop up. And the thing about it is, and I tell people this about church planting too, is you could probably uh, develop four or five study centers at smaller colleges for the cost of one, you know, at a, mm-hmm. at a major uh, institution, you know, because just the cost of living and everything is so much lower. So I think there's a lot of, need but i think there's a lot of potential in smaller places have you given thought to what would a uh, and maybe these exist i i, I might be ignorant of, what would a study center that's at a more rural 
uh, in, a, in a more rural community. Maybe that's not even the right model. I'm not, maybe we can think about that. What's the right way to think about it? But what, what would be the defining marks of that? Like how, how would you best serve a rural community and how would that look differently than serving a, you know, a, a dense university community? Yeah, I think a lot of it would be scale. Um, you know, it just wouldn't have to be as big, but I mean, I think it'd have the same kind of things, kitchen, library, you know, places for studying, um, good books on offer courses, maybe not as many, but a couple courses a semester on offer to think well about something. So a lot of it's actually pretty similar. You, you would find some faculty who are well-trained, who are Christian and who would want to help, um, you know, instead of having a 17,000 person university or a 40,000 person university, you might have a 6,000 person university, but that's still a lot of people in a part of rural, you know, wherever you're at, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, and then some of these colleges are actually close enough where you might be able to have some overlap, you know, or you might be able to be in one building rented space for two days and in another one at the other place for two days. You know, you could think creatively about it. Mm -hmm. um, I think along the lines of how you might think about church planting. Um, so I think I think it could be done. I mean, it does take a blend of skills, right? You need to be able to have people leading these who can think well and, and have credentials of some kind, though maybe they don't need terminal degrees to the same extent, but they need to be, be the right kind of thoughtful people. But at the same time, they need to have their ear to the ground and be aware of the context. You know, there's going to be ways and tones of conversation that might be different in different communities. Right, right. Yeah, different, different uh, interests bubbling up from the mm -hmm. community itself. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do want to just, as I was thinking, um, as you were talking, there are study centers that are at much smaller colleges. I, I think of the C.S. Lewis Center at, that's in Northfield, Massachusetts, um, which is a very historic site for, uh, that's mm -hmm. where Dwight Moody uh, had a lot of his revival uh, ministry headquartered. But it's a pretty small town now, and mm -hmm. um, I, I don't, uh, exact, I don't recall the university or college they serve, but it's a small one because mm -hmm. um, it's a small town. But there are a few of those. But um, I think the, the ones that certainly gather the most resources are places like University of Minnesota, University of North Carolina, um, University of Wisconsin, mm -hmm. um, these, these bigger schools. Um, uh, okay, I want to um, ask a different sort of a, a question that's slightly different. But as someone who's a pastor, Charlie, I, mm -hmm. I wondered um, if you had some thoughts on this, which was, um, what is the proper, uh, role of Christian education for the church and for these other ministries? And I wonder, I've wondered this in my, in just my own setting, not even thinking about, uh, working at upper house, but in just in my own church mm -hmm. wondering, you know, sort of what should I be looking to from the church in terms of intellectual formation, um, exposure to sort of ideas that are challenging to the faith or, or sort of sophisticated theology, um, that I can use to bolster my faith mm -hmm. versus going to, um, you know, a college or a seminary, or even going to a study center or a campus ministry or something else yeah. as a pastor. How do you think about that? How do you think about sort of what's in your, what do you want to shape and what do you want to sort of outsource to, uh, other ministries to shape? Right. Yeah, and it depends where you're at, right? Because the reality is, as a pastor, where I am, I can't outsource much at all. If I outsource mm -hmm. it, it's to the radio or to cable television, right? Mm -hmm. So so for me, there has to be a way. When I think about it, I, I have to think, what do I really want to convey? And that has to be a part of what our church does. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just 
for me, it often comes down to just like theologically robust, thoughtful teaching, you know, from the mm-hmm. pulpit primarily, um, or a course here and there, you know, um, on a topic. But I do think, you know, if you have the luxury of having options available, which is a great thing to have, um, it's probably more of a question. And then the thing as I was thinking about this, even ahead of our conversation, I was thinking what what I really think needs to happen, and this is happening to some degree, though I think it, there's always room for more, is a real partnership between local churches and institutions like study centers, you know, hmm. um, or seminaries or whatever you have in your vicinity. Like that geographic proximity does matter. So mm-hmm. a sense of partnership for the good of the gospel and the kingdom and a sense that we don't have to do all the same things. We can like share the load. I think that is a really good, like if there's a sense of partnership and teamwork, because honestly, like some of the really thoughtful intellectual conversations, you really may not want to have those at the church because some of the people, half of the people may not be ready for it because we're hoping our churches are actually quite diverse on every level, you know? And so the church on some level has to be about the main and the plain, um, the, the, just the gospel, the sacraments, um, the fellowship of believers, you know? And so some of this is actually is better suited for a study center or something like that. But if there's a yeah. partnership that can be, that can be really beautiful. Yeah. And I, th- I think of someone that we, uh, work with here pretty regularly. His name's Christopher James. He's at the university of Dubuque theological seminary. Um, but he often, he does a lot of work in Madison and he talks about sort of ecosystems mm-hmm. as the way to think about sort of church or ecclesial ecosystems. Um, most, uh, uh, institutions, whether they're churches or study centers are often just thinking about their own work and, and how we can do our mm-hmm. work better. Um, but we all exist in these ecosystems where if we think in, in those terms, we can make partnerships and have a bigger vision, yeah. um, than just our, our individual institutions right. that can offer. Yeah. Yeah, in my notes, I had prepared, I had this uh, line, monocultures and ecosystems written down ahead of our conversation, because I do think like that is an important thing to think about. Not exactly on those lines, but but I think his idea makes a ton of sense. But, um, you know, this sense of like. We if we only do one thing, sometimes. So I'm thinking about like the way we try to communicate. So, for instance, you know, video video teaching, right? Like Lignier Valley Study Center. Like they went from an ecosystem um, that took in their context, took in a lot of uh, kind of holistic sense of their place and was connected to other ministries by virtue of necessity to mm. a monoculture. And then that was that was also negative. So it can't be just like we do us and that we're fine. It has to be this integrated ecosystem mm. idea. Yeah. Yeah, and that it's interesting to think about that geographically too, because I think I mean we're we're doing this on a podcast, right? So it's sort of it's one version of that where we're going to beam this out, and anyone from anywhere um, can take it, and we hope more and more uh, people do it. But there is something lost, and we talk about this with with other stuff we do. There's something lost when you remove the embodied context of upper house, and that isn't to say that that what we're doing isn't worthwhile, but it is to say that it's a it's a, a different type than uh, when we actually host groups here mm-hmm. or when we have an event where we have people from the community coming in and um you know it for a variety of reasons including the ease of the internet and mass media and stuff the things that can scale well tend to be the things that you mentioned um you know cable news and 
uh, on, you know, internet. I mean, those are things that are accessible to everyone everywhere all the time. Um, but they're those monocultures, right? They're the things that, um, sort of offer the same message to everyone. And it's usually the, you know, the harshest message or the clearest message. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I guess I, that's a question that's just coming to mind right now, uh, Charlie, as you've, um, uh, been pastoring for, for a few years now, um, how much of your Christian education work is, um, sort of trying to build up, um, the theological or other knowledge, uh, in your, in the people, either your students or, or parishioners and congregants. Um, and how much of it is, is fighting against these other formation, uh, <laughs> sources, um, mm -hmm. that, um, not that, not that before cable news, people weren't getting formed by other things, but, uh, I think a lot of people think it's, it's intensified, um, in recent years, but, is that something you think about sort of how much of, are you trying to undo things versus trying to build, uh, build from a solid foundation? Yeah. I mean, I mean, formation is something I think about a lot and the formation, I mean, formation, as you guys know, happens to us all the time, whether we want it to or not, we're always being formed. And, and so I think about it a lot and sometimes it is a catch 22. I don't love that our church uses social media, but it seems like mm -hmm. we have to use social media. But I wonder what that's forming in our people, right? Um, so there are these kind of like, I don't know the best way forward on this. Um, but I do try as much as I possibly can to, to, to just lean into the fact that when we gather, it is formative time. When we walk to the front every week and receive the Lord's Supper, that is formation. You know, when we worship, when we pray, when we hear instruction from the Bible. So formation's at the front of my mind. Because I know folks are being formed 24-7, basically, when they're not at church. Yeah, that's right. Um, our, my pastor talks about, um, and this, this, he would probably qualify this um, even, even as I'm saying it, but that he, you know, has, uh, he has us for you know, 90 minutes a week or something. And then all these other media have us for however many hours <laughs> they right. have us for a week. And so um, particularly, this is one example um, he would have is, um, you know, the Bible talks a lot about justice. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so you can speak, you can say justice from the pulpit or you can be teaching it in the class and people are going to read into that word, a mm -hmm. lot of different things based on whatever news they consume and whatever they're reading. Yeah. And they're going to, they're going to assume you're talking about that, uh, when you're saying justice and you might even just be trying to be biblical about it. You right. might be framing it entirely in the biblical context. So, mm -hmm. um, I think of those really tough issues that particularly pastors have, but anyone teaching, uh, in any setting, uh, would have, um, with yeah. a lot of these, these terms that are in our culture and also derived from the Bible. Well, it, it's crazy out there. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy out there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I wanted to, um, uh, just wrap up with a couple questions. One of them is to just get your take as someone who is in a more rural setting. And so you're, um, you're dealing uh, with uh, people day to day who um, are obviously in that setting as well. And there's some perennial sort of Christian education topics. And I just want to get your take on mm -hmm. um, what they're like uh, from your perspective. And I don't want to like exoticize your, your location versus mine, but it's just, I don't live in a rural setting. So right. um, when I think about the first one is going to be faith and work. When I mm -hmm. think about faith and work, I think of it so intensely in this university context that I live in right? and the, and particularly a student oriented faith and work conversation where we're trying to prepare students to enter into careers, usually ones that require college degrees mm -hmm. that, and we want them to be thinking about how 
their commitments uh, to uh, Christ and and um, their grounding in the Bible will shape them in those in those contexts. I I want to recognize that that's not the context of faith and work that everywhere is, and, and probably is in in your setting. So what? When you think about faith and work in your context, what are you thinking about and what are you trying to get across to, to people? Yeah. I mean, it is some, it's partially by nature of my background. I mean, it is partially some of the same things on, on one mm. level. I mean, and we do have, we have professionals, we have teachers, we have architects, we have, mm. you know, we have some of the same engineers. We have these kind of people in our church, but at the same time, our community also has a lot of blue collar service work, you know? Just like probably every community does, they just might not be in a certain church, right? Um, but so when I think about faith and work, I do. I try to help people think. I mean, I'm pretty inspired by Schaefer's holistic take on it, too. So I think I try to get people to think about that there's no sacred secular divide, that that all of life counts and, and all of our jobs count. And we're not just, you know whittling away our time for no reason, but like this is a chance to worship the Lord and actually invest in the kingdom, you know? So, so that doesn't, it doesn't matter what kind of job you have for that. Mm. Um, but the reality is, and, I, and I'm, I'm thinking back to a Christianity Today, I think it was a cover story. It might've been more than five years ago now called God of the Second Shift. Uh, they had this story mm. on kind of like the way in which most faith and work conversations assume a white collar listener. And I do think that is, a problem and and there are lots of people that just even simply getting to church on a regular basis because of their shift work is hard let alone coming to like a four-week class on faith and work you know so what does it look like to actually um help these folks think about it it's it, it looks like something different right and innovative which i'm still thinking about what that looks like here um and it also sometimes just looks like validating that the, that work matters because you don't read about it in most of the books, you know, coming out from IVP or something on vocation. Like these jobs don't show up the same unless it's like you might be a farmer, but you're raising like grass fed beef and you're having this like mm. restaurant local connection. But you're not just like a dairy farmer and you're using hormones sometimes because you have to in, in rural Western PA. You know what I mean? It's, it's a different yeah. conversation. Very interesting. The other one I wanted to ask you about uh, sort of another perennial issue in Christian education is just the the sort of apologetics or or knowledge type of education. So that's often a, a you know way that Christian education is delivered is there's certain defenses of the faith or there's certain you know issues um, that are very hot in the culture mm-hmm. that um, and and I again I'm, I'm assuming this is why I wanted to ask you about it. I always come at it from a university context. So there are these issues that students are learning in the classroom yeah. and you're wanting to make sure that they have a sort of Christian perspective on them. Sure. Um, how do you think about those types of uh, apologetics or, uh, or ideas-oriented education um, for a non-university context? Well, I don't think a lot about apologetics and, and I think it's kind of the nature of the way there's like been maybe a subtle shift from apologetics being at the front, you know, form, mm-hmm. front of, of thinking. And I think I've inherited that a little bit. But yeah. at the same time, I do think a lot about, again, formation. And part of formation is being able to think well about your time, right? And the, the problems of your moment. And the thing is, because everyone in bigger, small places has phones and has access to the same ideas, though they might have trickled through like mass media, um, many of the same ideas 
though maybe a little less distilled, are are out there in our churches, right? And so it does actually matter that pastors are equipped and willing to tackle some of the ideas that are out there because everyone, with the way tech is anymore, everyone is encountering them and they're trickling down to every sphere of life. Um, so, so that does matter. Um, and that's why it does matter. I mean, I think the calling of, of teachers and pastors in large and small places is just so important right now because there are so many ideas vying for our attention and for our hearts. You know? hmm. Okay, so that, that takes us to the last question here. And that's, I just wanted an open-ended question of if you could uh, sort of dictate where Christian education, broadly construed, um, moves in the near future, in the next five to 10 years, what are the, the two or three things you'd really want to make sure are emphasized or are, uh, are top of the mind uh, for the people you said, pastors, teachers, professors, uh, those types? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say, um, you know, as I worked on my book, uh, I kind of came into contact for the first time with the work of Jacques Ellul and this idea of a technological society and technique. And it's captured my mind since then. And then Alan Noble's recent book, You're Not Your Own, uh, uh, you know, really kind of riffs on that and does a great job. And so I, I am pretty convinced that we need to guard against efficiency being like the number one motivator for everything, uh, including education. And we need to intentionally, because it will not happen unless we're intentional, push into more and more human forms of education. The more hmm. it, it takes account of all parts of our humanity, the better. And the more it meets us in a relational space. That's one of the things as I was looking over some of the Regent chapter and stuff in preparation for today, I was just struck once again by Houston's emphasis on relationship. And it was like through 40 or 50 years of his career. I'm, I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, even when he would get pushed back for being too relational, not enough time in administration, like but he knew this was so important. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think education that has to be relational, it has to be life on life. I mean, there's a time and place for podcasts. There's a time and place for, for instruction uh, from a great teacher. But our tendency to just want the celebrity to give us a nice, you know, edited talk is dangerous <laughs> to our souls. And, and because there's something lost. I mean, when you're thinking about Labrie and you're thinking about like you worked four hours together, you know, in the garden, you learned something at that time. And then you went in with dirty hands and learned theology. Like there's something good about that. And then you ate a meal together. So it's going to look different in all kinds of places, but it has to be contextual. It has to be relational. It has to be for this place in this moment, for these people that God loves uniquely, you know? So that's, that's probably like my biggest thing. And that's going to look like all kinds of different things. Um, and then part of the, a second part of that is that it cares about people in a lot of different places. You know, yeah. and it's not just for the folks who are going to be at the front of the line for everything, you know, the best yeah. educated, the people with the best connections, but that that it tries as best it can, the movement in general, the study center movement, but just like thoughtful Christians try to um, make room at the table for people of different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, geographic backgrounds, because it really does matter. I mean, what does it look like? For like the consortium to catch a vision and say, 
we're going to intentionally look at some underserved places and harness our resources to that. I think that kind of stuff, that sounds human to me. That sounds very kingdom to me. Agreed. Agreed. That sounds like a vision of um, the kingdom from Revelation 7, 9 or or, uh, many other places in the New Testament of a very diverse, uh, multicultural, multi-socioeconomic class Mm -hmm. kingdom. So, Charlie, thanks for your time. Thanks for the work you've done and your ministry going forward. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Good luck to all you guys. God bless in all you're doing. Appreciate Upper House. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org and our other podcast, Upwards, where we dig deeper into the topics our in-house guests are passionate about. With Faith in Mind is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin, hosted by Dan Hummel and John Terrell. Our executive producer and editor is Jesse Koopman. Please follow us on social media with the handle at Upper House UW.